this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And joining us for this interview episode, once again, Chip Midnight, welcome back. Thanks for having me as always. Chip, you have, you've gone out with your trusty microphone and hunted down a new guest to I interview. Have. I have. Uh, would you like picture, to share? I'm picturing <laughs> Chip running around with like a net and a microphone. He's got a no, got a big boomstick, and he's oh, just yeah. he's just running around with this big boomstick. <laughs> and like I watched, I watched Get Back recently, and you know, like running around maybe uh, with a, with a whole tape player like in a bag over my shoulder, running right. around chasing people. <laughs> there That's you what go. I do. Yes. Yep, yep. So yeah, uh, so I spoke with a gentleman. Um, named Adam Elk from the band The Mommy Heads, and so I, the reason I sort of pause on his name is his his real name is Adam Cohen, and he went by that throughout many of the years while in The Mommy Heads. And at one point, uh, Leonard Cohen's son, who coincidentally is named Adam, started a recording career, and some label was putting out an Adam Cohen Leonard Cohen son CD, and so just to avoid that confusion, uh, Adam Adam changed his last name and is now goes by adam elk hmm. that's very courteous of him right yes so the mommy heads i don't know if you guys are familiar I, the name definitely rang a bell with me yeah the name yeah. rang a bell um, a very very 90s name too yeah and i know you, you know we talk about this or you guys talk about this and i talk about this a lot on the podcast is there was so much music in the 90s that i know that i owned a mommy head cd at some point I might still have it in a box somewhere, um, but I was shuffling through so much music back in those days that I don't remember it very well. But uh, they really only put out one major label record. Um, it came out in 1997, and it was self-titled. The thing, as you know, as you guys have uncovered over the last ten years, is the album came out. Uh, there was a staff shakeup at Geffen, and right after the album came out, all the support that they had within the label was gone. And so mm. essentially they were out on the road and um, without really any sort of label support and it, it fizzled before it started. Um, it, you know, honestly, the album sort of barely made it out. And I think Adam has talked about in other interviews that um, because the album was already out, Kevin didn't decide to pull it off the shelves, but they did nothing to promote it. But the interesting thing, and you know, we talk about this a lot in the interview and uncover a lot of it, is um, they came out of the the late '80s New York scene. So Adam mentions in the interview that uh, you know he he was a, a frequent visitor of places like CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, but he was just young enough that he missed that first wave of the Ramones and Blondie and television. But sort of that ripple effect, like the hallowed halls of CBGBs, like he was that music was still buzzing around the place, but like the next generation. And so that was where he came up. I think he said that he went to the school, the fame school, uh, that, you know, the musical performing mm. and music and yeah. arts performing school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not to give too much away, but he says that he started playing around with, with recording equipment and just making music that way. And really, really influenced by what was going on around him and not the stuff that I was influenced by in a Cleveland suburb in the eighties. He was, you know, I think he said that he did listen to some of the, the, 80s hair metal but that really wasn't his thing and just started making music um again without too many spoilers they signed with simple machines which was a pretty reputable label scroll scroll there you go yeah uh you know it's funny to look back this many years later on a a label like simple machines because adam tells me that you know everything ran out of jenny toomey's basement um so it was not like this big headquarters or anything it was it was people making tapes in somebody's basement and and mailing them out Um, right but you know that was that was their start. They 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 started with simple machines, and they thought that 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 was that was as great as it would be. I mean, they were excited to be on simple machines, and um, yeah. And you'll hear the story about how they ended up on Gap, and it's a really interesting story. Um, all of their friends along the way. This band is quintessential. Dig me out. You know, they're a band that 
don't have a recognizable household name. You probably don't know any of their songs, but they were around throughout the entire 90s, putting out a lot of music, touring with bands. They toured with Cake. They toured with Southern Culture and the Skids. They got signed, I believe. They got signed, or maybe the maybe they were out on the road when they got dropped. With um, They went out on tour with Lisa Loeb. Um, so like they have all these connections, and yet, like I said, they're a band that not many people know about. Um, just one other thing to point out is they, so they, they, they sort of broke up after the, the major label thing uh, fell apart and got back together. Unfortunately, due to a circumstance, their drummer passed away from cancer. Um, Tim, I think you told me the year was 2007. Yes. Uh, so that, that kind of brought them back together and they have been putting out music. Ama- like just, it's, it's amazing how much they put out since that yeah. time. Um, I, I, it's almost like an, an album a year. Um, they use Bandcamp pretty heavily. Um, Adam was kind enough to send me one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine CDs. Um, yeah. So they're, they are, they're putting out CDs as well uh, of that music. And really kind of the, the whole way this interview came about is they are right on the verge of re-releasing something that had been long out of print, um, some of their earliest stuff uh, called Swiss Army Knife. And on the packaging, it says Lost Mommy had teenage four track gems from the mid 80s. So some of the earliest stuff that they recorded, it's 21 songs. There's some couple live from CBGB songs on there. So um, that was sort of the, the, the reason I got in contact with Adam in the first place was to help them talk about and promote this long lost demo that is finally seen the light of day. They cool. uh, have 11 records on streaming. It's going back yeah. to 89. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, Adam talks about how it's it's pretty easy for him to record these days, um, yeah. and so and so it's just a matter of getting getting people together and sending tracks back and forth with each other when they can't get together. And um, you know, I, I think I think they're sort of in that point now where it's like it's it's fun now. Mm-hmm. No pressures. Yeah, no pressures at all. No pressure, no expectations. Yeah, right. That's our motto here: at uh, <laughs> no expectations and no pressures. Uh, we show up, we do it, and that's uh, and that's how it goes. Chip, it's thanks. Kind of, kind of the secret to happiness. Yeah, it is. It is. Thanks for uh, doing another interview. We uh, we always look forward to these, and I know that these are a big hit now with the community. Uh, they uh, they love not only your current interviews, but all the stuff that you've the retro stuff that you've been throwing up uh, on on our Discord, which people should definitely join the Discord or join the Patreon to get access to that Discord because. Uh, there's a lot of good um, stuff from your swizzle stick uh, eras and um, things that are only available via the Wayback Machine. Yes, which is yes. cool. Yes. The internet never forgets. So I'm working on a bunch of other interviews. So stick around. Um, you know, again, Adam is probably somebody in Mommy Heads or a band you probably don't know, but it's a it's a great conversation. He's a really he's a really friendly, great guy. Had a lot of great stories that will. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say fill in the blanks of the nineties, but he's got a lot of nineties stories. So I think everybody will enjoy it. Even if you don't know the band's music and go to Bandcamp because you can stream it all. Excellent. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Chip. Let's get to the interview. On one hand, there's the baby. If it's going to be born, it needs a family. On the other hand is my finger pointing to a travel brochure. So let's start off by asking, like we were talking before we started, uh, tell me about sort of the end of the 80s, early 90s, where you were uh, physically, where you were living, what you were doing, and then sort of mentally, like what, what sort of place were you in your head as a, as a teenager or as an early 20-something, um, whatever 1990 was for you? Yeah, so uh, I really, I was a four-track kid. I had a, I had a Yamaha four track that was my whole world i was of that four track generation which was pretty amazing back then the ability to take a cassette tape that you could buy in any store put some piece of metal on the back it was like a little strip and turn it into four tracks and you can take three tracks and put them onto one and then take three more onto one which was similar to what the beatles were doing and the stones and the kinks they were sort of doing the rhythm section in one track, mono, which was actually a great sound, the sound of mono drums. Um, there's no phasing. It's just real punchy. 
and just they just kept dropping them into tracks. And so I had that same ability as a 15 year old. I was like a little scientist. And, you know, there were a lot of us out there, this, you know, the Sebados and the early dinosaur. I mean, we're, we all had those four track tape machines and and I'm proud of being part of that and feeling like it was limitless to have any cassette could become a, a, another world. Um, yeah. And we're actually re- re-releasing or re- giving an official release to the Simple Machines four-track demos that we did in the 80s, which was our first foray into being on a label with Simple Machines. And it was so weird that we were just kids. They were kids, you know, the Fugazi camp, the Teen Beat camp. Um, and I sent those in just to get a reaction from Jenny Toomey. And she's like, I love this. I want to release it. And that was such a great feeling as a, as a teenager to have someone else like your music and want to put it out. And even though they put out a hundred cassettes, it felt so good. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, someone likes this. And so there's this, there, there's just listening back to it. The enthusiasm is there. The technicality may not be there and, and the sort of chops may not be there. But the pure enthusiasm to hear your 15-year-old self to, to 19-year-old self and the whole experience was so much fun that I hope it conveys now that we're 50 in our 50s. Yeah. Um, and so that was the 80s for, for us. And, and Michael was a four tracker, our keyboard player. And we all sort of met, you know, I went to music and art high school, the fame school, and all the four trackers hung out and we discussed better ways to do it. And, and it was almost like concocting new potions. And, and uh, it, was, it was science experiments with music and listening to other people's four tracks and get, getting ideas. How did you do this? How did you do that? And and there was this was pre Pro Tools, pre cell phone, pre internet. This was big, and so um, I loved anyone else that sounded like that. The the artists that felt like that to me were not the metal bands of which I grew up with, kind of liking because all my friends liked Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath. It was more like the They Might Be Giants and Dubway, Al Houghton. Like those guys seemed like four trackers on steroids and Fish and Roses. You know, bands that would go in that had three hours because they had no money and just went crazy in a studio, recorded it, and then took it somewhere else cheaper and kept overdubbing and, you know, early Flaming Lips. You know, those are the bands that we really gleaned towards. We also were, we saw ourselves as heady, intellectual, keeping the, 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 the light alive for bands like Television and Talking Heads were kind of burning out. And we wanted to be the new version of that, the new New York No Wave. It ended up being a little more darker and Sonic Youthy and Dinosaur Jr., but I was part of a camp of people that loved James Chance and the quirky stuff and tell and and um they loved suicide even you know because of the tech techno two guys with synths and um and our first gig uh, at CB's I've I've talked about this often and I didn't even think about it until this year but our first gig together as this incarnation th- you know 31 2 years ago was opening for Crowded House by accident Hilly Crystal was like, this band wants to take over the slot after you. And it was a Saturday night. And we saw them and thought, we need to get better. And that was the end of the 80s. And we decided kind of around that show, we need to play together. We need to practice. We need to record more. We need to be professional because these guys, it's literally the best show I've ever seen in my life at CB's Acoustic. And it's hard to get past that. Oh, yeah. Still trying to up that, up our ante to that experience of opening for them and not having our you know what together. So. And that was a band we felt akin with. I love Time and Tide by Squeeze. I mean, uh, by Split Ends. I loved Squeeze Argy Bargy. And it was smart. It wasn't afraid to play soft. It wasn't afraid to play be noty and, and, and sensitive. And it, it kicked butt sometimes, but mostly it didn't just turn up to 11 and assume all you wanted to do was get your anger out. You, it, you wanted, as a male, get other things out. You know, there were sensitive subjects. There were worldly subjects. Time and Tide is about being a sailor, you know, and, and, and the ups and downs of being, wanting to navigate the whole world and, and squeeze were singing about relationships in other ways. And Graham, uh, Graham Parker was singing about relationships in ways we never thought about. And Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson, you know, he was, he was going into being gay, like very openly, Uh, you know, there was other things to think about other than goblins and, uh, you know, so I'm I'm kind of being long-winded, but that was the '80s, trying to fight back against just masculine over, like, like 
too much masculinity in rock and, and trying to do something different. Here's a question that you probably can't answer because you didn't live this way, but had you, had you not lived in New York city and that's where you, that's where you lived at the time, correct? Right. Do you think that that would have transpired your, your career the way it did? Um, because to me, I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland and I'm thinking like, I was totally, I didn't have sibling or older siblings. Uh, my parents weren't into music. I was spoon fed MTV and FM radio. Like the bands you mentioned to me in the eighties, I don't even know if I had even heard of them. It was all, if I did, it was all um, quote unquote underground rock, but it sounds like by just a virtue of living in New York city having CBGB's down the street, you were exposed to a lot of stuff. Do you think if you had grown up in Cleveland, Cleveland's probably not a good example because there's a lot of good underground music in Cleveland, but if you'd grown up somewhere other than a, a big city, do you think your music path would have gone the same way? I want to think that who I am and who the mommy heads are as people would drive us to those, those people in our town that liked Para Ubu, who were from yeah. Cleveland. You know, like we would go, we would seek out the bands touring through the Buzzcocks and go to that show and skip the Monsters of Rock. I would like to think that, but I think you're right. I think we had, I used to go to CB's after school and my parents never knew where I was. And I was the rug rat. I was always there. I would help sweep up if they let me. I did lights when the guy wanted to go do drugs in the alley. I was, I did lights for the Pixies when they first came through. No one else wanted to do. I was up there as, as a 17 year old, just, I couldn't, I couldn't tend bar. I couldn't do sound, but I tried to do other things. Yeah. And there was this feeling like, wow, the, the glory days are over you know, the Blondie got signed and moved on and television moved on and, and they just visit once in a while, like kids who were, you know, I, I, will you visit on Thanksgiving? That's, that was the feeling. And we had kind of, we've, we had missed it. We had missed yeah. the glory days, but I knew all about it from talk. And wow. I saw the Dickies when they were on New Year's Eve 79. And I was, I was nine. I couldn't appreciate, I, I wasn't there. So I felt like I was definitely in sort of the after wave of the greatness of CBs and tramps and you know, Kansas, uh, Kansas, Max's Kansas City. And I did know more about some of these bands that never toured that should have, that were great. But, you know, New York was also a wasteland. Yeah. And there weren't a lot of places to play. There weren't, you know, it was, it was the Village Voice and that was it. And Robert, uh, Chris Degas was kind of obnoxious. In some ways, the smaller towns were insulated and you had Euclid Tavern and you had great places in Cleveland and bands could actually grow in ohio like scrawl and poster children and guided by voices and brainiac and you you they were able to incubate a little longer than new york where if you didn't have a crowd after a year people just didn't care it was a little more um you know that your ego would get battered quicker here and that you know in smaller towns you can survive longer and kind of get your thing together yeah um, there's a reason why cheap trick came out of the burbs of illinois and why some of these, you know, why to me, the ultimate is flaming lips came out of, came out of Oklahoma. They were able to not pay attention to the naysayers and, and, and the, the haters and go back home and just make their records and make their art and do their installations and tour when they wanted to. And, and New York was a little more brittle in terms of, you know, the career paths. Yeah. It's higher. It was, it was more expensive. So yes, I think I, we wouldn't be the same. We, we wouldn't be the same band, but I don't know if it's better or worse, to be honest. Yeah. So the 90s roll around, um, early 90s, and you're, you're recording, you're putting out records. You, I think you started putting out stuff in the late 80s. Um, you hook up with Jenny and, and Simple Machines in early 90s, 91, 92-ish? I was sending them stuff in 88, 89, which is when we met. And yeah, they were wonderful. They, they literally made cassette copies in their basement on a, on a TAC machine. Yeah. That's what and I was they gonna... started a subscription service. They were the original pa Patreon. Yeah, know? yeah. And that's what I was wondering. Um, you know, again, in in historical looking back on the time and my days of starting to write in the '90s, Simple Machine seemed like a a really legitimate. Um, I don't want to say powerhouse, but like a, a, but but you're saying you know it started off as recording tapes in the basement and sending them out. No, when people say we need culture these days, they had it. What blew me away, we used to, we, we, our first label was Fang, which was uh, Chris Rail, and he was from Bethesda, or he was from Maryland, and he, he knew D.C. So we went down there and played shows, and that's how we fell into the whole teen beat. We opened for Unrest, we opened for Tsunami, and we fell into that whole scene. And what I loved about it is we were children of working class people in New York and had a different aesthetic altogether. It was more about, let's just put up posters and play shows, you know? 
down there, they were they were sons and daughters of diplomats and had a world vision. And the conversations around the table were about um, wh- wh- where the world was at and politics on a global scale. And Jenny's still doing stuff like that. She's for the Ford Foundation. I mean, she's still a powerhouse because they early on, they it was almost like kids from Hollywood just become actors because they that's all they know. Yeah. These kids were really smart. And uh when they did something in terms of like a label, it felt like a movement and there was a political slant and money went to charities that you never heard of, but then you learned about, and then you felt like you were part of something. And then it puts you on the path of doing more charities and more benefit shows and Velocity Girl would play benefit shows. And I was so blown away how different DC was from New York. And before the internet leveled the playing field and the whole world seemed like just one big glob, one place, one big blob, each city had its own feel and the music out of there was heavy, but it was so politically charged. All the lyrics were so politically charged. It grated on my nerves that the guitars were out of tune and the drummer couldn't play. But then the, but then you'd hear these lyrics from, you know, bands like Minor Threat and Tsunami. And, and they were, they were like about real things that we were heading into to become young adults. So I felt so blessed to be a part of that scene. And I think anyone from a distance who saw it, couldn't even grasp how are these kids so uh, unified on all levels? Yeah. And uh, how do they convince you to join them so easily? Because it's a political city and they just understand the gestalt of that. And uh, it worked for them. Yeah. Whereas other, you know, look, Dave Grohl's from DC. We, we did a split single with him after Nirvana when he had his demos for Foo Fighters. He knew there's something special about Simple Machines and about these bands. Um, and then you go to L.A. like we did, and then you realize, wow, that's all about the opposite. They don't care about the world. Yeah. I mean, not everyone. It's the business side. It's about it's about how many units did you move and who produced the record and who did the cover. And um, so the D.C. scene was was pretty amazing in the 80s. I have to say I was we were blown away. And so so. Um, you know, I don't know if there's a formal signing to Simple Machines, but Simple Machines agrees to help you put music out. What was that? Um, was there plans, bigger plans, bigger aspirations for mommy heads? Was it simple machines are a stepping stone to the next thing? Or was it like, I'm just happy somebody's putting this stuff out for us? Yeah, we never had a plan. We we were probably like all those other bands that never had a manager or a manager that was focused on the plan. Yeah. You know, there were bands when you read their memoirs, like Queen, they looked at Led Zeppelin and thought, we're, we could do that. And they did it. And and most bands that we knew, um, and including us, we had we didn't know what we we're gonna do next week, right. but we knew we wanted to make music. And so our biggest problem, uh, and what made us most ende- most endearing to you know people endear to us is that we didn't have a plan and it was just about the music. And so even when we finally got a manager and we were signed and and you know, we were five records in, we still didn't know we we everyone urge overkill had the logos together and everybody had logos and they kind of looked like Sunoco or they looked like Getty. We didn't never did a logo. Every font has been different. Every cover has been different. Every theme has been different. But the cool thing is, is that when you do it for the music and that's what you're doing, there is a consistency that the music should, it should be good. Yeah. Whereas when you do it for other reasons, there's a bunch of clunkers in your catalog and things you don't want to play people. And there's a lot of bands that made the clunkers and was, it was embarrassing and had the logo. Yeah. So we definitely fell into the trap of not caring enough about the business side and about the five-year plan. And yeah, we're definitely going to be in a tour bus in three years because we never, we always saw that as mana. It was like, it's all just fake. Like just because you have a, if you have a tour bus room in more debt, when we t- played with Sunny Day Real Estate and they had the tour bus, you know, or whoever cake got the fi- finally got it. You know, you got to sustain that. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, it's something you dream about because it's almost like you're told to dream about it by the system. And we were fine in the van. We we're fine in a car. And so we, we suffered from it and also are still around because we didn't get bogged down by that. Yeah. So, so you were playing shows in Baltimore, DC, kind of, going down to play just just more so because that's where simple machines and you you felt like you were kind of in with that with that crowd um or were you actually doing some real touring besides that 
we always toured okay. and we would book ourselves and we would, the local station would play us once and I'd call the club and go, Hey, we're getting played off the charts. It's amazing. Oh, come down. The thing about back then was different from now is it's so easy to have analytics. Now, every yeah. move you make has to be um, crowdsourced and, 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 and focus grouped and, what are the numbers from the last show? And we don't want to take a chance unless we know we're going to make our return plus profit. Back then, there, every town had one dude like yourself, like me, who just loved music and wanted to see the show as a fan. And so they would book four bands that just sounded similar or complimentary. Or he's like, you need to know these three bands. I'm putting you on. They're a little heavier, but they're going to love you. And there was this camaraderie that the internet kind of blew away. Yeah. Um, and there was no analytics and some shows would have 10 people. Some shows would have 300. It depended on the night and what the competition was. So we kind of fell into these bills where we just kept opening for great bands. We go to Columbus and, and open for super chunk. And I would find out about them that night. And then we would go to Toronto and open for unrest and find out about it. And you'd be constantly becoming fans and sunny day in Kalamazoo, Michigan and tragically hip in East Lansing. And, John Spencer's Blues Explosion in Chicago and Alex Shilton. And, you know, like it was nonstop opening for bands where the booker was invested in terms of quality, in terms of making a good night as a fan, not just as a businessman. And that's what we kept falling into and we couldn't stop. Yeah. And we were so addicted to playing with Sunny, uh, Southern Culture and the Skids and, you know, and just all Timbuk three, just the ween, just throw, get thrown on bill with two shows with ween back to back in Texas because the booker liked ween and liked us. And the, that, that was the vibe back then. And why I hate playing now is they want us to headline. They want to know what our draw is and they may cancel on us. If there's not enough pre-sales, there was no pre-sales at a, at Euclid Tavern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we miss. And that's why it was so much better in that one department when it was not focus grouped back then. And that explains a lot when I would, you know, I didn't do a ton of traveling when I was in my early college years, but you know, go on a spring break somewhere, go to visit a relative and you'd pick up the free paper and you'd see some of those bills that you're talking about that I never understood. Like how does uh, red, red meat end up on a bill with boss hog. And, and it's, it's because, right. It's because the, the promoter is bringing these two bands who are traveling through the area. It's not, they're not touring together. And some of those bills seemed a little bit weird, but that it, it makes a lot of sense that, that you'd book these bands together from a promoter perspective, because that's who you want to see. I love when you open for a band like Boss Hog, which I think we did, or you open for a band like Jesus Lizard or whatever. And one of the guys is like, you know, I'm an in the closet XTC prog guy. I love Beefheart. And he's like, and he's like, I hear that in your music and don't, don't assume anything. I love your band. And check out our second record, third song, first side. Sounds like we, we listen to the same, you know, and you have this conversation where all the walls are down and you have something in common with a dude from a band that's way heavier and has a different crowd. But all of a sudden you have this new friend. Yeah. And, and, the, and the booking agent was so open-minded. They heard that and knew that you needed, you know, even though it doesn't seem right on paper, that you needed to be part of that scene. And um, I've had so many conversations like that and left becoming fans of band, fans of bands I never thought I'd be fans of and friends uh, with bands I never thought I'd be friends with because something broke through and they liked our lighter sound, our sensitive pop sound. Yeah. And they loved, you know, everything Tears for Fears ever did and Crowded House. And they're like, I hear it in your music. Let's let's be pen pals, you know. And you don't get that now. You're just yeah. put into like this or that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's thing we're filed just like Spotify playlists right now. And it's, it's very sad, but. You know, oh well. Did you, did you have any, uh, while you were doing all that kind of touring, did you have any, what you would consider sort of brother or sister bands that you did hook up with a little bit more often out on the road? Um, yeah. I mean, the ultimate for us is we, we played, I got a demo tape from cake. It was four songs and no one knew them. And I loved it and called their manager. And I wanted, I brought them to San Francisco and they basically opened for us for 10 shows until they had their own feet on the ground and surpassed us, you know, quickly. Uh, and then, you know, I've helped them get a manager and, and booking. We, I've had a booking agent that I hooked them up with. I was, we were the older brother band. And then we ended up touring with them later on and it was amazing. 
every time we were on tour and they were on tour, we'd find some shows to play. Yeah. And even though their music, it's highly intellectual, very swarmy and never veers off its course musically. It's always kind of similar, but it's so, they were such, they were probably one of the best bands I've ever played with. They were just a stellar group of guys that can play. And the lyrics were great and current and, um, the development wasn't as much as I wanted. They never made their, you know, they weren't interested in doing a Sgt. Pepper, but on the other hand, they were smart. They, they mined that one sound and they own it. Yeah. And so that was the band in the nineties that we felt most akin to. Um, and there were tons of other bands, you know, the Posies, Jellyfish, the Rain Parade, that whole scene, Game Theory. I mean, there, there were a lot of bands that I don't know if, you ask 99 people on the street out of 100, they won't know who Game Theory is or the Loud Family or yeah, but they should know. And there's very few bands that represent that, that ever got big enough, meaning the grunge scene had Nirvana and they had Pearl Jam and they had Mud Honey. But in terms of that pop scene, there's not a lot of bands that got to that level where they were the, the bellwether. And so whole scenes, you know, like the Laws got big because of a cover. but and they might be giants did their own thing, but there was, you know, there weren't really any, you know, bellwether bands for those scenes and the whole scenes are gone. Whereas yeah. no one dusted those bands and they're so good. Um, so lots of bands we were friends with that most people will never hear. It's, yeah. you know, American Music Club. <laughs> we played with the Red House Painters in a small club and I thought American Music Club did it first, but that's just me. Um, so there is literally you could write you could write a, a a war and peace novel on the bands that no one knows about but should yeah and that's what you guys do so yeah thank you <laughs> so what um so you you know I can read the the bios and I've I read some interviews um you moved from New York to San Francisco the whole band did or or part of the band right and you you, you... we well so the band. <laughs> The band that had its first gig, there was one incarnation of high school where there were three of us, two fell off and the two other guys from another band joined and that gig from Crowded House, CBGB's, that band moved to San Francisco, which was Michael Holt, Dan Fisherman and I. And New York was getting too grungy. Dinkins was mayor and it was getting a little, you, you were going to get mugged. It wasn't if it was, or it was when. And, and we met some bands from San Francisco and they said, you know, it's, it's really gorgeous out here. And, and there's a, there's a scene and we got out there and thinking fellers union was happening. We loved them. The res we moved to the same block as the residents who we absolutely adored. Um, and you had your harder stuff, Gilman street. And, um, uh, we were neighbors with jawbreaker and we worked in the same stores and there was a scene and it felt smaller, more Cleveland esque, I should say, yeah. you know, where it was like tightly knit, and away from the world, whereas New York was always, you know, all the press was here, Spin was here, Rolling Stone was here, L.A., everything, was, all eyes were on those cities where San Francisco felt off the beaten track. So it was it was a good fit for us. Yeah. Was that an obvious choice or had you considered, let's try, let's, let's look at Chicago, D.C., Detroit, San Francisco or L.A. and figure out which one we fit in? Or was San Francisco just sort of like that just felt right? Uh, the other choice for me personally was North Carolina Chapel Hill. And yeah. a lot of it was the beginnings of Ben Folds, who um, we did a show and, and Caleb Southern, their, their sound guy, did it. And we got into a long discussion about Ben Folds. And, but it wasn't big enough for us. We wanted some, something a little bigger. Yeah. And the Bay Area in, as a whole was, was a lot larger and there were more places to play. And the ultimate reason was Camper Van Beethoven, Pitch a Tent Records were kind of interested and we loved Camper. and. By the time we got there, they folded and they were on Virgin and we were like, hey, we're here. So, but we were always friends with those guys and they're the sweetest people on the planet. And those records still hold up, Key Lime Pie. Uh, and so we felt like if if the Santa Cruz sound is here and Camper's here and, and you, you know, these other bands are here, like, it's beautiful. So why not? Yeah. So that was, that was our, that was our college as a band. Yeah. Uh, when you moved out there, like you were mid twenties, early twenties, what was the 20 to 30 age okay. 20. To 30. And, um, was it, was the band self-sustaining or, or you said you had to, you worked alongside some of the guys in jawbreaker and stuff. So you were working jobs to, to, to pay the rent and touring oh. and, and playing records and stuff. 
or making Yeah, I mean, we were only self-sustaining on Geffen and they were just a bank that loaned us a lot of money. But yeah. before that, I think we were, we always had day jobs, yeah. which is the all to me. And I could talk later about it, but you, that's what you want to do. You want to not worry about the finances and make the best music possible. And we learned that that was compromised by getting the loan yeah. from a major label. So that was an experience, but I, all those guys had day jobs. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, even the Counting Crows musicians, you know, because the Lee guy was making most of the money. A lot of guys had side gigs and and um, everyone was playing everywhere. David Immergluck, who was in Monks of Doom, Counting Crows, he, oh, yeah. everyone was hustling. So we were all doing that. There was definitely less studio work in San Francisco than New York. So, you know, we, we had our day gigs and that was totally fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the first record you put out when you moved to San Francisco? Was that? Um... It was called uh, Flying Suit, and okay. it was on Dromedary Records, a label in New Jersey, a micro indie, as they call it. And we got a new bass player, Jeff Palmer, who was in Sister Double Happiness. And after we broke up, joined um, Sunny Day Real Estate because we were friends. Um, and so we did Flying Suit. And then Peter Cadis, who eventually produced The National and Interpol and Sting and Fish, uh, probably one of the biggest indie producers of the last 20 years came to a show in New York and wanted to produce a rec his first real record with us. And that was called Bingham's hole. And that was a wonderful experience to be, to have a real future star yeah. learning the ropes with you and, and just being an A plus producer. Now you um, said that was recorded in New York. Bingham's hole was recorded in Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. And his, and his parents' basement. So after moving to San Francisco, then you come back to the East Coast to record the record? Well, we would go on tour, and if somebody wanted to record with us who wasn't in San Francisco, we would hold a week on the tour, whatever city that would be in. Got it. So, he, And luckily, he was in Greenwich, and we could see our relatives in New York and spend a couple of weeks, and it was wonderful. I, in elementary school, my dad was a, a commercial airline pilot and flew out of Kennedy Airport. So um, my kindergarten through sixth grade before my parents got divorced i grew up in uh, new canaan connecticut so i'm i'm familiar with greenwich and norwalk and all those, all those yeah. yeah and you get to fly a lot of places for free <laughs> um we did yeah uh you That's know I, then my parents got divorced and i didn't take advantage of that as an adult i look back and i'm like man i could have my dad had friends who were pilots who would wake up in the morning and say i feel like getting real Kansas City barbecue. I'm going to hop on a plane and go eat lunch in, in Kansas City and then fly back and have dinner here. Yep. And uh, I was too young to take advantage of and understand like the gold mine that I had <laughs> that I should have taken advantage of. But that so, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's funny you mentioned Jeff as well. So Sister Double Happiness, um, they're, they're an integral part of my, my writing story in that I did not interview them. So um, Soundgarden was coming to Columbus, which is where I live. And uh, I really wanted to interview Soundgarden and I was writing for the college paper and AM Records said, yeah, they're only doing college articles that are like front page, front page, top of the top of the fold. That's how you become big right there. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I really want to meet them, but there's no way my paper is going to let me do that. So I'm going to look at the underbill and see who's opening. And it was Sister Double Happiness and Blind Melon. Oh, and yeah. I and I yeah. knew Blind Melon only, the record wasn't out. And I only knew Blind Melon because Shannon Hoon was in uh, Guns N' Roses video. Yeah. Um, so it came down to those two bands. Who was I going to, and I inter interviewed Blind Melon and, and became, I'm actually like still to this day friends with them, lifelong friends with them. But Sister Double Happiness was on that bill. I'm not sure if Jeff was in the band. Was he in like in, around those days? It would probably be 91, 92. He was in the band in 91, yeah. Okay. Very cool. They were a and, very important band. That lead singer, what charisma and groundbreaking with his, you know, his whole stance being openly gay and his lyrics, I mean, were intense and, and their whole mixture of blues and rock we felt different. It wasn't ZZ Top. It was some new thing, you know, yeah. like 90s version of that vibe. And then, and then there was at least yeah. one, was it one or both of the women were in, in, in Imperial Teen after that? Uh, the guitarist and, and the, um, I don't know if it was wife or his girlfriend was, became Imperial Teen, okay. which great things too yeah and so, they were san francisco so that was really cool yeah so so you're in san francisco um you're starting to get some buzz you know, i I've, I've read a little bit about sort of how gaffin became aware of you again was that something that 
were you even pursuing that or was that a means to an end or was it like, you know, if everybody else is doing it, we should try to hop on and see what we can get out of this thing. Or was it just a, um, I don't know, like how, how did that? Yeah, it's weird. You know, back then everyone seemed to know an A&R guy. It was like, yeah. you couldn't miss them. They were everywhere. And um, it, we, we, we got on a tour with Lisa Loeb. And for anyone who doesn't know Lisa Loeb, she was the Taylor Swift of 1995, six, seven. Like she Absolutely. was, she came out of nowhere. She had a song in that, that movie and in, in the credits and didn't have a deal. And so she had a bidding war like no one had seen before for one song and Geffen paid so much money. And then she became the next thing for them because they were looking for the next Nirvana since 93 when he died. And Guns N' Roses had broken up around 93, 94, whatever, and Axel was losing his mind. They had really nothing of that level. And so they really pushed her. And we got on that tour when they first signed her. So we were, we just had friends that knew each other and she was a big fan. And the Bingham's Hole record did kind of well. It, it wasn't front page anywhere, but it was really well reviewed. So we had a buzz, indie buzz, whatever that means. And so we were playing with her. Um, we did 15, 20 shows up and down the Eastern Seaboard, every, as small as a house of blues to as large as outdoor, you know, mini amphitheaters. And it was eye-opening. She had tour buses and crews, and she was super sweet, and she was on Geffen. And we also had other friends, like the Southern Culture were on Geffen. And um their A&R guy, they were, you know, was looking around and they said, you should check this band out They're, You know, don't miss it. Don't miss the boat. So Todd Sullivan, who also had signed Weezer, came out to St. Louis to see us and literally right after the show said, I want you guys. And we, uh, you know, it's it's an amorphous thing that just sort of happens one day. Yeah. You're at the right show. Uh, and we uh, we we came back and and it was quick. And we, we, Don was, we had the same manager with Don was, and they asked us what engineer would be like. And we loved wildflowers by Tom Petty. So it was Jim Scott, who was Wilco's engineer forever and, and the Rolling Stones. And, and all of a sudden it went, bam, you know, we were, we were uh, in LA a lot, which we didn't like, but they were down there. And, and um, it was like a bidding war between them and Sire and, and we got a big time manager who was not the nicest person openly to people in negotiations, but said he was defending our interests. And, um, and that became sort of a dark, it, you know, the recording was amazing, but then realizing that you're a number in, in a game, you know, you're just, in, you're a rabbit on, in, in a race became grueling for us because we just wanted to make music. Yeah. We had no, nothing in our band had any star power potential in it. You know? Well, um, when you, when you, when you got the offer in St. Louis, um, at, the, at that point, did you have a manager or at that point were you guys still just the four of you? We had someone who almost wanted to take a chance on us or maybe he was, <laughs> yeah. we, yeah, he, he, we had a manager and he, he, our, his other acts were Herbie Hancock, Don was Maxwell dream theater. I think we were working with them and, and he got, he got really pit bullish with them and, extorted as money as much money as possible which is what managers are supposed to do yeah but the more money you get the more pressure you have and um there better be a hit on that record yeah i, I think we all learned maybe 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 people knew this before me but i feel like i learned a lot from um jacob from semisonic's book i didn't need to read that i keep hearing about it you know where where as a kid, I'm growing up and I'm watching MTV and I'm seeing these million dollar videos and I'm seeing tour buses and, I, and, and you know, in high school, I'm going to the arena shows where it's a, a 15 truck bus tour. And I'm thinking, man, you guys are all loaded. You leave this tour and you go home and you drive the nice cars and you live in these mansions. And then you start reading that exactly like you said, labels are a bank. They're loaning you the money and you're paying for the catering at the photo shoot and you're paying for all these different things along the way. And, and that to me, and again, maybe, my, maybe I was a little bit blinded to it, but that was really like the time that um, my eyes got open to, to the, the realities of what signing a major label deal was like. And so it sounds like you experienced that. Oh, it's amazing. Once there's money in your camp, the sharks smell it. 
It's chum in the water. And, uh, you know, we were in the studio, we were at Ocean Way, and like Mick, the dude from Foreigner walks in and says hello. And the guitarist, Wadi Wachtel, walks in and says hello. I mean, it just was a string of people walking in, shaking our hands. We didn't earn their respect. Willie Nelson walks in, Leon Russell. I mean, it was like Rick James. I was like, what's going on? It felt so weird because a month before that, I was, you know, at my video store job, rewinding cassettes, <laughs> you know, and, a, and the stack was high. I wasn't getting home till midnight. And here I am shaking hands with the dude from Foreigner and uh, talking to Jack Joseph Puig, who just did the Weezer's, you know, song and, and, and meet, meeting, hanging out with John Bryan and Amy Mann, all my heroes and Michael Penn and, it was endless, you know, and, and we loved it, but we also knew something is wrong. We did not earn the respect of these people. And it's all about the money. Once you have half a million to a million for a record in somewhere floating around in the ether, you have people who are there to do those things to eat the money away, which is the tour bus company, the snare rental company, the drum rental company, Sophia Backline, uh, the booking agent, the, 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 you know, the tour manager, the hotels, Travel agent. I mean, there's a list of people who are set to do things just for you. They're they're ser their service industry for to utilize that money to spend it completely. And it's not profit for you at any point. It is yeah. just to make one song pop on K-Rock. And if you don't have the ability or the song, it goes away fast. And um, when we came in, we said, you know, we're not a typical hit making band. We're more like a Dave Matthews, you know, fish, not musically at all, but sure. we want to cultivate. We want to have a long-term thing where, you know, we have 20 records and a huge catalog and, you know, you don't get one song. We don't No, No one's waiting for the one song at the end of the show. They want to hear the whole show. Uh, we're that band. Um. And they said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. That's the way we're going to do this. And it never, they still wanted that one song. Yeah. And so you realize it is an industry that perpetuates around that loan. Once the loan is out, everyone starts coming around. Once you're dropped, crickets. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. When the, when the Geffen self-titled, self-titled is not your debut, but the self-titled debut for Geffen came out, um, did they put did they put you on the road? Did you guys go out on the road to support that, or were you dropped pretty much as soon as it came out, or even before it came out? They were since we had the cake friendship. They were hoping we would tour with Cake, so they wouldn't have to work too hard. They didn't want yeah. to work too hard. Yeah. And Cake had a big tour and a big hit, The Distance, and we were booked for it. And then something happened where they canceled it, and then they had to have a meeting again. Hey, the, the tour is not happening. Uh, the record has been put out. What do we do? And this is what I heard from the meeting that they just decided to bag it. Yeah. And didn't really go to bat for us and say, don't worry about it. You'll go on tour with Weezer or something else. They just, they, then they probably re-listened to it in a meeting and said, what the hell is this? This sounds like light indie music. Um, why would we want to put invest into this? You know, maybe that week they had a hit with who knows, um, a metal band or something, or, you know, like a corn had a hit that week. They look at the week and then they look at you before, before that more money gets doled out for whatever and go, Oh, that sounds nothing like this bag it. So that's what happened. It was like a meeting on a bad week for us or something. And they just said, let's move on to something else. And the, and all, the whole year of making the record and all the effort just goes away. <laughs> was it a, uh unceremonious dropping or were you called into an office and told like, Hey, we're going to let you guys go. Or do you, do you remember like how that was there a phone call? Was there a meeting or was it just sort of, you realized we that people weren't returning calls? We had two A&R guys. The other A&R guy was Tony Berg who had Amy Mann and counting crows and Peter Gabriel. And we really looked up to him and he brought us to a dinner where they put the fish in the lap. You know, he had a dinner at his house and he goes, I'm sorry to tell you, but you know, we had a meeting. It didn't go well. And Geffen's not doing well, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and that, you know, then you're like, you're 20, whatever, 27, and you're going to live, you know, go back home and sulk, for, you know, that's which is what we did. Yeah. And then and, we broke up and that was that. Yeah. So, so that kind of gets us through the nineties. Um, 
but but you didn't you didn't stop making music either as a solo artist or you were doing other things. I mean, the, the mommy heads for all intents and purposes stopped for a little while for ten years or so. But 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 it, I imagine as a creative type person, whether or not people heard your music or not, you're not going to just stop cold turkey and go back to that video store and rewind tapes for the rest of your life. Oh no, I'm I'm a I'm a frantically creative person. I'm always creating. So I, I did a solo record and played shows in San Francisco and. Actually had big shows. We we I opened for Cake and that was fun. And and we just did a local release. Remember those? Oh yeah. Digital CDs only in local stores. And then I, I moved to LA because I had a deal with RCA. And then RCA, you know, I had artist direct booking me and and it looked pretty good. And we were, I was opening for Tenacious D. <laughs> and uh and then they had issues, artist direct. And RCA dropped them, and then I got dropped. And then at that point, I'm like, it's almost 2000. I'm going to go to New York. My family lives here. And I moved back to New York and started, I got a real career, which was jingle writing for eight years. And then we got back together. Our original drummer passed away in 2007 from high school. And we got back together in 2008. It was a great show, packed full of fans. And we looked at each other and said, we're not getting any, you know, younger. Let's do this. And we, started making records in 2008 again and it's been joyous yeah yeah so. and you've put out a lot of music and i haven't looked at all the different streaming services but bandcamp has your whole catalog bandcamp is amazing yeah <laughs> it's the best in a world of spotify's and apple itunes where you get nothing if anything you lose money and it's all free and it gives the wrong impression to people who want to take an art meaning some hard drive in Sweden is going to go down one day, or there's going to be a lawsuit in Finland, and all of a sudden, all our music goes away. In a world of that, Bandcamp actually gives you $8 for every 10 spent. It's actually the best deal I've ever seen. It's better than labels. So we're definitely on Bandcamp. And then we, we do the Spotify's and, and uh, other services. But if you actually want to own MP3s or AIFs, Bandcamp is great. You just yeah. download and so we have since 2008, we've done like seven records. Yeah. Um, and we're actually living the dream of being a band who you don't go to the show for one song for, you go for the whole show. And it's very diversified. And we can play one song from each record and have a full show. And that's the band we wanted to be. Yeah. Which is a heritage band um, and not a one hit wonder or whatever that is. Um, so it's it's been fun since then. It's sort of weird, like in hindsight, and I don't really mean this seriously, but it's almost like a lot of bands starting out would have been better off maybe having a, a quote-unquote real career until they turned about 30, 35, and then started the music thing where they could appreciate and understand. Because I imagine the 20s were fun for you, um, but really like your eight, like where you're at now is way more rewarding than those fast and loose days when you were running around the country in a van and playing in front of 10 people one night, 300 people the next night. And you probably wouldn't trade it for anything, but you're probably in a better place today. I would guess. I mean, we are, in, we are in a better place. I'm in a better place. We love what we, lo we, we see every moment as a gift now yeah. because of wisdom and age. And we truly, the music sounds like that. Yeah. It's vibrant. Yeah. But I will say that labels thrive off people who don't know better. Because, you know, in some respect, you're the trained monkey on the music box. They're spending money on you to do what they say or do what you think they want, which is go out and play the, the warp tours and get in the van and don't shower for a month. You're too smart at this point to do any of that. Um, so everything is in reverse. It's a reverse world. Um, you know, most industries thrive off people being too, too young to know. Most industries, whether it's models going to Milan at 17, 18, like my sister did. Um, but I'm, I, I wouldn't change a thing, but I do think you're right. I think on a musical pure art form level, I wish I could have done this back then. Yeah. Um, it was also harder to make records back then. You did need money. You needed some finance. You needed to pay an engineer, a producer, a studio. Each town had one or two good studios. Not like now where every bedroom is a good studio. Right. So... There is less music from the 90s. There's less music from the 80s, even less from the 70s, and very little from the 60s, and a minute amount of music from the 50s. So now there's more music, 
and everything's inverted. Like it's harder to get to. It's harder to know what's going on. Oh yeah, for sure. What's good. There's piles and piles every day. Check me out. Look at me. You know, back then, if you actually made a record, it was such a feat of engineering that everyone was like, yeah, of course I'll listen to your record. <laughs> you know? So everything's inverted and yeah. you just have to accept where you're at and try to just do the best you can do with what you have and where you're at. So I feel like I read horror stories from bands who um, aren't able to get access to their old music, especially with major labels. But, you know, I see your album, your Geffen record on Bandcamp. Um, is that all clear and in your name and all good for you guys to have it? Or how, how, like, how did you end up with being able to put that back out? This is the craziest thing. When we were dropped, I distinctly remember having paperwork or discussion that we got the music back. Of course, that paperwork, it's 30 years ago, so I can't find it. But so I, I'm like, it doesn't exist anywhere. Geffen just let it go. So I, I, I take sort of an approach of people need to hear this record. I'm going to send it to radio because we're sending all these other reissues out. And here, radio, here's a record from 97 that is lost in your, is gone, that you should know about. And it does well at radio. <laughs> it charts in the top 100 last year, last spring. And people are like, wow, this is so great. Thank you. Um, it's so great. You got it back. Meanwhile, my lawyer is like, let me double check. <laughs> and their lawyer goes, I, we can't find the paper. Oh, they, they sent us paperwork that says it didn't revert back. So my lawyer goes, well, it looks like um, you just have a, a top 100 college record that you don't, you can't really, you know, make money off or claim that's yours. And I'm like, look, we don't make money off anything. So this is basically a promo thing. Literally a week later, it's on Spotify. So I basically woke the beast up and said, please take this seriously. And they, by, by jostling their legal department, put it on Spotify and iTunes. And it says 1997 and it's being reviewed all over again. And I personally don't, I don't care about making money. I just want it to be out there. So yeah. mission achieved. And now I have promo copies. I don't charge for them. They can't sue me. And I send them to DJs and press people that want to have a copy. Yeah. You know? So that was the deal with that. It was a misread situation um, that worked in, that worked in our benefit. That's great. I, again. I feel like I keep making this up, but I feel like I really heard this in the Wilco documentary. Um, uh, who's the Rolling Stone author, David Frick. I right. just saw, I do, we just sat next to each other at the, at the wall, um, at the Roger Waters movie, that live movie. Okay. Yeah. He's like, Hey, Adam from the mommy. I'm like, David Frick, you know, he'll never review us, but it was nice to hang out with him. And I swear he said this in the Wilco movie, but I, maybe I'm making it up out of that, you know, what I wanted him to say, but I thought he said something like, there is always going to be a kid listening to the Beatles for the first time. And so, you know, it's kind of like, the record industry puts you in this, like this time, like you have three months to promote it, six months to tour it next record. But somebody hearing the 1997 mommy heads record for the first time could write a review today about it. And it would still be relevant. And it was still like your, to your point, it can still get played on the radio. There, there's not, we shouldn't look at music as time bound. We should look at it as timeless. And so anytime a person hears it for the first time, they should share their opinion. That is such an optimistic approach. And I love it because I'm an optimist. I wouldn't do this if I was an if I was a pessimist. Yeah. Um, I do think some music, because it defined an era, becomes timed out. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. When you hear someone going mumbling that '90s thing, it sounds like a Pearl Jam band, or you know. Yeah. But the thing with us is because we never had success with a hit, we're timeless by default. And so we put out Coming into Beauty with a Simple Machines record um, last year. We reissued it and it went to 67 on college radio. And everybody said, when did you record this? It sounds so current. Like, it sounds like they dropped all these other artists I didn't know, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, that's a 30-year-old record. So there's a time warp where time folds like paper, <laughs> you know? And it's the ultimate compliment, meaning we were so out of time that we can actually reissue records now and they sound current. Unlike if we were, you know, if we're mud honey or something, it yeah. sounds like 91 and they had a lot more success, but the one bit of success we've had is the lack of success because it's kept us artistically free. 
and we can do anything and have those wonderful conversations with press and radio. Yeah. And especially with 20 year olds who love, who are like many versions of us there. They don't leave that collection of LPs. They're like, whoa, who's, who, you know, who's Graham Parsons? And then the thing says Rolling Stones and they go down a rabbit hole and they come out enriched. We, they love us. Yeah. And to me, that's the ultimate reward. And I'll make each record just for those guys. Awesome. I have two questions. One, one, maybe easy one, maybe easy two. Um, maybe a quick answer. When was the last time you saw a mommy head CD in a used bin at a record store? Um, it's very rare. Is it? Yeah. I'm actually told by record store owners. Oh, I had one. It sold. It's like, I, I won't actually see one. I'll just hear about it. Yeah. So it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think there's a lot out there. Um, the reason we put coming into beauty out again, and what the impetus for it was, I saw one on Amazon for $900. It was an original <laughs> simple machines pressing. And I'm like, God, that is the scam on that is someone's trying to do that with all these records, hoping somebody's willing to pay 900 bucks. And I knew it was kind of ridiculous, but I'm like, let's just make it available. Yeah. Um, and I feel bad for record stores with it being free. Every, you know, music being free. But that said, you know, there, I have a lot of records that will never be on Spotify. The legal problem is there. They didn't sell enough units. It was just not enough for anyone to, you know, it costs 60, 70 bucks to put into the system now. Somebody doesn't want to pay that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, there's a dearth of stuff. There, there's not enough on Spotify, to be honest, of stuff I care about. Yeah. You know, there was a band called The Records that had a hit and a bunch of other records that are not on Spotify. Um, there's so many post-punk and, and punk bands and new wave bands that are never be on Spotify. So there is a need to go into the, those record stores for guys like us, but oh, yeah. they can't survive just off us. They need more than that. So I don't know if they'll be around in 10 years. To be, you know, to be so like fine. I said, I, I live in Columbus, Ohio, and we actually have, at last count, eight eight record stores yeah it's pretty amazing and, and they've been in the last 10 years so i mean it, they haven't always been here you know but columbus apparently supports final buying to the point where the main record store that i used to go to that was on ohio state campus and bought all my you know they sold all the promo cds so you, sure. you could get i could walk out you know for 15 bucks i could walk out with six or seven cds instead of buying That's a new great. one they barely even sell cds anymore it's the whole store is like wall to wall vinyl so you know there are there at least in columbus there's a market for it. people are still buying it i think there is a uh an opening for uh baby boomers retiring and their kids of baby boomers don't know what to buy them so yeah. we buy them it's like hey mom how about a a record player and i'll supply you with carol king and and bob seeker and you know and so we end up going to shopping for our parents yep and that market al alone is enough to keep record stores open, I hope. Uh, I don't think it'll make it to my kids' generation, but I'm glad. Look, there's seeing art on a record is, you can't beat it. Nope. So, nope. and, and, and I still, I still, my brain functions in a 30 to 45 minute, flip the record over, say what you got to say, get out. I don't, I never understood uh, CDs where they, maxed it out with 80 songs. I'm bored by the time the 30th song is around. I need a limit. And LPs by their limitation is how I see music. I see it as a concept record from the first needle going down to, to it coming up from side two. And I'm, that's the way I'm trained. So as part of the whole Dig Me Out podcast, and, and if you go back and listen to some episodes, that is a hot topic because the 90s were the CD era. And people were filling them 74 minutes worth of music. And they, they have a, uh, the two hosts, Tim and Jay, sort of have a rating system. And they, they could say, you know, a good, a good album, a better EP, or a better single. And they sort of break down an album, you know, how many songs really were, were good and how many were the filler. Um, so that's a, that's a heavily talked about topic on, on Dig Me Out. So I feel very strong about this. Yes. I like bonus tracks if it's like Bandcamp and digital. But when it comes to hard copy and LP, we, we, all our records from now on, like the last three to four records and whatever we can do until we can't do it anymore, 10 songs, 
40 something minute, whatever gets the best quality. And the music should be good enough where you feel like you have, you've had that experience and you're done. Yep. Yep. You know, it's like dessert. You've had your appetizer, your port, your main dish, whatever. The same way you function with a meal, you function with an LP. And if it's too long and it starts to lose its quality, you're, you're screwing up, you know, yep. 10, 11 max, keep the bonus tracks for the download. If, if you really love the band and you need to hear them live and in Boise, fine, you know, but make sure that record is solid because I'd say 99% of the time, if there were tracks that were left off the record and you hear it, you're not that psyched about it because the right. artist wasn't right. There was a reason it was left off and it kind of kills it, you know? So uh, final question to close things out again, realizing it was, you know, we're now 20 to 30 years ago. If you could kind of sum up the 90s, how would, how would you sum up the 90s from your perspective? Well, we felt out of place. So personally for us, we would have preferred the 70s, 80s, or 2000s when Death Cab came around and told us they missed us. Um, and it was, it was adversarial and, and, and it was uh, very masculine to me. It was like a masculine decade. I think Generation X was frustrated uh, that Woodstock documentary where they burned the whole place down didn't seem that far-fetched to me. We were living it. Um, it's not my, it's not my favorite time, but we existed in it and I have to cherish it as well. And I have amazing memories from it. And there were a treasure trove of bands that no one knows about that, uh, need to be heard. And the, one of the ultimate reasons why I love continuing as a band is because when, you know, if you love a pair of shoes and there's a cobbler somewhere and they're nice Italian shoes, but just need a little sole reinforcement, you can't take them to Walmart. And you don't, you don't want to be part of this disposable society where you just throw it away. You take it to some cobbler who's in his 80s who fixes it up new. That person exists for that need. And we exist to keep the flame going of this type of music, whatever this type of music is. It is 80s, 90s music, born in the 70s, and is kind of current and also completely out of place in 2022. So we are, we are musically, when you listen to us, it seems very familiar, and yet we're trying to say something fresh. So we need to continue because a lot of bands were crushed under the weight of their own success or lack of success, and there's too few bands doing this. So we, it's almost historically significant for us to keep going. And to me, that's what I think of when I think of the nineties and I think of why we still exist. Awesome. That is a, a great way to, to tie it up. So uh, <laughs> appreciate you taking the time and. Uh, I appreciate what you're much. doing. So yeah. The love is evident and, and it's appreciated. So, uh, and one day we'll talk about, we'll pick a record and dive in. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages.